pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Wow. Nice scripture, Pastor. You're so deep. <laughs> but what's the message God gave to the prophet Haggai? All in due time. I could tell you the message, but in order to fully understand it, we're going to have to have a little history lesson and get some background this morning. But before we get into that, I want to start by asking you a question. It's not a very spiritual question, but it applies here. Does anybody in here play poker? Of course not. No one in here plays poker. We're all Christians, and we don't gamble. So put those hands down before someone sees you. <laughs> But anyway, have you heard the phrase, and it's usually in poker, where somebody says, I'm all in. And he pushes his pot into the center, or he pushes his chips into the center of the pot, and he says, I'm all in. And that means that he's betting everything he has on that hand of his. It means that if he loses that hand, then he's finished, he's done, it's over for him. He has nothing left. He's going home broke. There's nothing more for him to give. That's what it means to go all in in poker. But going all in is more than a move in poker. I'm all in aside from poker means to be fully committed to or involved in something. Fully committed to or involved in something. It means giving or being prepared to give all your energy all your ability, all your resources towards something that really means a lot to you. Something that's a high priority in your life. I, I, I haven't been going that long. I'm going to start meddling all that already. But are you all in when it comes to your marriage? Are you all in when it comes to your family, when it comes to your job? Are you all in when it comes to God? Are you all in? And as you know, we have to prioritize things in our life or we'll never get anything done. And, uh, you know, there's, there's never going to be enough time. There's never going to be enough money or resources to accomplish everything in our life that we want to accomplish. Never going to be enough. So we have to do... Uh, something instead we have to prioritize some things and set some things aside that ain't as important and then focus on the priority elements of our life uh, when I was manager with UPS I think I told this story before but a man I'd have a stack of mail on my desk every morning when I come in 
And some of it was important, some of it was trivial, some of it belonged in the garbage. But I'd have to go through all that mail, open it all, sort it out, prioritize it, and then work from that list of priorities. And whatever was left at the end of the day went to the top of the list the next day, if it was important enough. And then I'd have to prioritize again. But it seemed like I never got everything done every day. So I got the important things done, and that's what counts. But Jesus said to seek the kingdom of God above all else, seek you first the kingdom of God. And when he says above all else, that means everything's underneath that, right? He says, and live righteously, and I will give you everything you need. That's what he said. Uh, that was in the New Living Translation. He says, seek you first the kingdom of God and his way of doing and being right. And all these things that you need, the things that the world is always seeking and striving after, he says, I will add them to you. So that takes a lot of worry off my plate. If I prioritize and put him number one in my life, I don't have to worry about any of those other things because he'll see to it that I get them done. He'll see to it that I get the things that I need. So God makes it clear here that he wants to be number one. And if he is, then he'll see that everything else is provided for us. So if you're going to serve God, then you have to realize that he is going to require time and resources. Time and resources. And unfortunately, whenever there doesn't seem to be enough of either time or resources, God is the first to be pushed out. Why? Because he's not number one. He's not our number one priority. He gets the leftovers, if there are any. If I have enough time, I'll serve God. If I have enough money, then I'll give to God. And I can say without any doubt that everyone in here has enough time and has enough money to serve God. Every one of us has enough time and enough money to serve God. But here's the real question. Do we have enough time and enough money to serve God and still live the lifestyle that we want to live? The answer is no. No. And you never will have enough. The more you have, the more you want. That's why when you have to make a decision as to who's more important, you need to choose God because all those other things that you think that you have to have, he'll add to you. He just wants to be first. But if there's, if one of us has to sacrifice, who should it be? Should it be me or God? If one of us has to come up short, should it be God that comes up short? Or should it be me? If I don't have enough time in the day to do everything that I need, do I push God aside and use that time that belongs to him for something else? No. I should give him, if he's number one, if he's my first priority, I should give him the first fruits of my day. The morning. Don't get up to, well, I'm running late. I got to do this. I got to do that. Uh, and I, I, I'll pray tonight. I'll read the word tonight. I'll worship God tonight. And then tonight comes and you're wiped. So God gets pushed aside. Give him first time. David said in the morning, 
I seek you. If God's really first in our life, then I feel this bouncing back at me, but that's all right. <laughs> then we would be the one to sacrifice and not God. And, uh, you know, I've said this before that you shouldn't take your wife's time or your children's time and sacrifice it either. God doesn't want their time, but he don't want you giving them his time either. Amen? Amen? So if anybody has to sacrifice, it's me. I need to get up earlier or I need to go to bed later to make sure that God, number one, gets his time and then my family gets their time. And if somebody comes up short, it's going to be me. I'm going to lose a little sleep. But I'm going to see, too, that God gets his time and my family gets their time. Amen? Amen. But here's a question. Why should God be first? Have you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot? It infers or implies that God is riding in the car as you travel down the road of life. Only problem is, he's in the trunk. We put him in the trunk because we only want him near in case we have a flat tire as we're going down the road of life. After all, that's where the tire and the jack is. So we pop the trunk, he comes out, he fixes the flat for us. We put him back in the trunk and we go merrily down the road of life. Well, a few of us grow in our Christian walk, and we get God out of the trunk, and we put him in the passenger seat. Praise the Lord. That's better than him bouncing around in the trunk, right? But then he has to be careful, because if he tries to correct too many of our bad driving habits, we're going to put him back in the trunk. But when a Christian gives God first priority in their life, they toss him the keys and say, you drive. Yes. I'm tired of having all these wrecks. I know this is funny, but, you know, the way most people serve God is a joke. I'm going to be real straightforward with you today. See, we're at a place in time where if we're going to serve God, then we have to go all in because God's tired of riding in the trunk. He don't deserve to ride in the trunk. We just sang that song, he's worthy. Well, if he's worthy, put him behind the wheel. Let him guide you down the road of life. <laughs> Let's get back to the word before I get in trouble. You know, the Bible starts out in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God. I know it says, created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. Uh, but you know what? In the beginning, God, we should stop right there. I don't know when that beginning was. It wasn't at the recreation of the earth, because verse 2 tells us about the recreation of the earth. God didn't create any of those things in verse 2 and beyond. He had already created them. A long time before that 
in the beginning, whenever that was. There was a time when there was only God. No angels, no people, no earth, no plants, no animals, no nothing, just God. All those things eventually came into existence at one point in time, but God was always there. But what if God never thought to create the heavens or the angels or the earth? What if he never thought to create you and I and put us here on the earth? He'd still be God, just like he always was, just like he was in the beginning. He didn't need us. He wanted us. He wanted a family. But think about it for a minute because we feel as though everything should resolve, revolve around our lives. It should revolve around us, but it doesn't. Everything should revolve around God because we wouldn't even be here if God didn't have a thought. Amen. He had a thought concerning us. And so he created us. He's the creator of everything. So he doesn't deserve our leftovers. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He made it all. Yeah. It all belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, the earth and everything in it belongs to him. He created it. He owns it. He owns you. He owns me. We're here only because God thought about us. When he came to this earth and became flesh and dwelt among us, it was because he thought about us. When he was tied to that whipping post and beaten beyond recognition for our healing so he could say by his stripes we're healed, he thought of us. When he was punched and spit on and uh, a crown of thorns jumped, uh, jammed into his head and his beard plucked out, it was because he thought about us. When he was nailed to that cross and shed his blood, all of his blood at the base of that cross, it was because he thought of us. Yes. Amen. He's always thinking about us. We're God's number one thought. We're God's number one priority. We are always on God's mind. But how often is he on our mind? How often do we think about him? How often do we make him our number one priority? He created the heavens the earth, he created the heavens and the universe, the moon, the stars, everything. And then he created the earth. He, he created the heavens first because he needed the heavens to minister to the earth. Then he created the earth and he put us on here. He created the earth before he created us because he wanted the earth to minister to us. All of creation is for us. Yes. David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We're on God's mind all the time. But he's on our mind if we have time or if we need something. If he never thought about us, we wouldn't even be here. But he'd still be God. That doesn't change. But thank God he did think about us. And as a result, he did create the heavens and the earth. 
And because he thought about us, he created our parents, Adam and Eve. And he places them on earth in a place called paradise because he wanted the best for his children. And that's where we were supposed to be born and raised, in paradise. And God was number one in their lives. And they would walk with him and fellowship with him in the cool of the day. And they would just walk. It would be like a big glory cloud walking through paradise every day. And they never wanted for anything. He provided everything they needed. Why? Because they put him first. He gave them one commandment, though, as a test of obedience and loyalty. One commandment. He told them not to eat of a certain tree. Not a big deal. They had thousands of trees in the garden, and they could eat from all of them. He said, just this one. Don't eat from this one. Because in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. I mean, it wasn't no big, you wouldn't tricking them or anything. It was pretty plain. Eat the tree, eat from the tree, you die. What they do? Ate from the tree. And it broke God's heart because it broke fellowship with his creation. His most prized creation, his man and his woman, it broke fellowship. He couldn't fellowship with them any longer because now they're in sin. That put the wheels in motion to get his son here to sacrifice for us. Because he wanted us back. He wanted to buy us back. Adam, in the process, gives a lease, the lease that he had on the earth. He subleases to the devil. Now, uh, God not only lost his most prized creation, he lost, temporarily anyway, the lease on earth. Because Adam had the authority to do that. So anyway, Adam and Eve have children, and their children have children, and so on, until, until the earth is populated with thousands, maybe millions of people. I don't know. And so God gives them a few commandments and says, I created you, and I gave you life, and this is how I want you to live on the earth that I created for you to live on. Not asking too much. But they don't like anyone telling them what to do. So they rebel against God, and they start doing everything that they want to do. They ignore God. They put him in the trunk. And they get so out of control and become so wicked, which is what happens when people don't have boundaries. When people don't obey rules. When people don't recognize and obey authority. This is what happens. They get wicked. They don't get better. They get worse. So God, the one who created them, finally gets fed up with it. And so he floods the earth and kills them all. Except Noah and his family. Eight people. Why? Because Noah feared God and was trying to do what was right. God recognized that. One person in the whole earth. God recognized that. So he spares Noah and his family. And he wants to use them to repopulate the earth again. And before you know it, the earth is full of people again. Started out with one righteous man. But guess what? Turns out they don't like being told what to do either. They don't like to have authority in their life. So they rebel against God. 
and decide they're not only going to rule the earth, but they're going to build this tower and they're going to climb this tower into heaven and take over heaven. Take over the, from the one who created them, who created everything. They're going to, man is so haughty. And you see that today as well. I can name names. The, the, the false prophet of Revelation is alive and well, and he's speaking today. There's a certain organization that already thinks that they're gods. This is nothing new. But they're going to climb this tower and take over heaven too. A third of the angels cried that and failed. And puny little man thinks he's big and bad enough to do it. So God has to deal with him again. But this time he can't flood the earth because he promised Noah he would never do that again and gave him a rainbow to remind him of it. So what does he do? He confounds their language and scatters them all over the, world, the earth. But that doesn't stop their rebellion either. As a matter of fact, it gets worse and they start developing their own religions and making their own laws. They say, we don't want to follow this God because he expects too much out of us. He don't want us killing anybody. He don't want us having same-sex relationships. He don't all this crazy stuff. So he's out, we're in. We're gonna be our own little God. We're gonna do whatever we want to do, and then we're gonna say that God accepts it and approves of it. We'll start our own churches, have who we want in it, and what God calls sin, we're gonna say it's all right. We're going to create our own laws. The people that God created were all over the earth doing this and believing that they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do and God had to accept it. There's a gospel of acceptance being preached in the earth right now, today. Not only that, but a gospel of tolerance. You have to not only accept me, but you have to tolerate me. Because... God's okay with it. And I'm not going to mention the sins because I promise I wouldn't get too political this year. That was one of my revolutions, I mean resolutions, not to get too political this year. But they totally pushed God out. We don't want you in our life. We don't want your rules in our life. We don't want your laws in our life. We're going to do it our way. We don't want you in our courthouses. We don't want you in our public places. We don't, we don't want you anywhere. So pretty soon, God is no longer known on the earth. That's what happens in just a couple generations. If we don't teach our children to teach their children, then God will be gone from their life before you know it. They will wipe out... The total existence of God will be wiped out in the earth. So God decides to reintroduce himself to the world. Here's where the history lesson comes in. Because I want you to understand what we're, where we come from, what we're made out of, why we're the way we are today. He raises up a man by the name of Abraham, which means 
father of many nations. Because that's what he's going to make Abraham, a father of many nations. But one nation in particular. And he wants to make him a great nation and then bless that nation so much that the world will look at that nation and say, they must be serving the one and only true God because there's no other nation in the earth blessed as much as they're blessed. And God will get the glory and the, the worship that he needs and deserves. And God tells him, I'm going to cause you to defeat giants and armies and nations that are much greater than you are. Uh, so everyone will recognize me and finally start giving me the honor and the respect and the worthiness that I deserve. So Abraham and Sarah, now these are impossible odds, you know, because Abraham's in his uh, 90s or 100s, Sarah, Sarah's in her 90s, they're way up there in age, they're past the childbearing age, and Abraham laughs about it. Sarah laughs and rolls on the ground when God tells her she's going to have a child of her own. But God pulls it off. He has this miracle. And, and Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And he has 12 children. And they have a multitude of children that become the 12 tribes that eventually becomes the nation of Israel. So God says, you're going to become my chosen people. And I'm going to make you a great nation and bless you. And you're going to introduce me to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is going to know about me because of you. Not only that, but I'm going to send the Savior through you. The Savior is going to come out of the, uh, Israel someday. But guess what? Things are going good for a while, and they rebel. And because of it, they go into Egyptian captivity for, uh, and they're enslaved for over 400 years, something like 430 years. And finally, when they have enough and they decide to repent and cry out to God, God hears them. Why? He's been waiting all that time. He loves his children. Just because your child rebels and messes up doesn't mean you don't love them anymore, right? And so God raises up a deliverer from among his people by the name of Moses. He says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Who should I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let his people go. I am says, let his people go. Pharaoh says, no way. Okay, then, well, here's 10 plays for you. I'm going to cut it short a little bit. But here's 10 plays for you to show you who the real God is around here. And we know the Egyptians worshipped everything. They worshipped flies. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped uh, fish, insects, cows. They worshipped everything. And every one of them plays that God sent on, the, on, on Egypt, not the earth, just on Egypt. Because in Goshen, they didn't get, get any of those plays. Not where Israel lived, but on Egypt, all, every one of them plays was mocking one of Egypt's gods that they worship. You want to worship flies? Here's a few flies for you. 
You want to worship the Nile River? Here, I'll turn it to blood. You want to worship cows? Here, I'll give them hoof and mouth disease. You want to worship frogs? Here's a few frogs. God was mocking their gods. And he's telling them, I'm the one and only true God. And it took them 10 plagues before they finally recognized that. And the last plague was when they took the firstborn from among the Egyptians. He didn't take them from Israel. He says, you kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, and I'll have the death angel pass over your house. But every house in Egypt lost a firstborn. Every barn lost a firstborn animal. Every firstborn died that night. So Pharaoh gets to thinking that if he doesn't let God's people go, there's not going to be anybody left by the time he gets done. So he finally agrees to let them go. And God causes the Egyptians to look on uh, Israel with favor, and they give them all their silver and gold, all their fine jewelry, all their fine clothes and everything. And, and God heals them all, and they leave Egypt rich and healed. The Bible says there wasn't one feeble among them. Brand new start for Israel. God loves his kids. And, uh, you know, while Israel wasn't gone very long at all, and Pharaoh changes his mind, and he decides he wants them back. You know, some people never, are never going to accept God for who he is, no matter how much he proves himself. But anyway, Pharaoh gets his army together and he goes after Israel, all his horses, all his uh, chariots, all his soldiers. And he catches up to them right at the edge of the Red Sea. So now Israel has the Red Sea before them, Pharaoh's armies behind them. Nowhere to go. Looks pretty hopeless. But God shows himself strong once again. And he tells Moses, he says, raise your staff. And when he does, God parts the Red Sea and Israel crosses over on dry ground. Well, Pharaoh, thinking that he's God, he's thinking that his gods parted the sea for him to chase Israel. I can't think of any other reason why he would take his armies into the middle of the Red Sea. Well, he gets out in the middle of the Red Sea and God closes it. The real God closes it. And Pharaoh finds out it wasn't his God that opened it to begin with. And all of Pharaoh's armies, horses, chariots, everything, Pharaoh himself perishes in the sea, never to be seen again. God proves himself. And so Israel is cheering and praising him and giving him glory and honor and recognition. And they're worshiping him on the other side of the Red Sea there, all dry and everything. And God is thinking, finally, these rebellious people are finally beginning to realize who I am. Yes. But then, not too long after that, they're worshiping the golden calf. So God wants to kill them again. And he almost does, but Moses intercedes. But God killed thousands of them with a plague. But Moses intercedes and saves a remnant. And 
And God still wants them. He still loves his creation. He still wants to bless them. He still wants to bring them to the promised land that he promised Abraham. A land that flows with milk and honey. But Israel still doesn't like trusting God. After all of those plagues, after all the miracles, after the parting of the Red Sea, they still don't trust God. And so they send 12 spies into the promised land that God told them belonged to them. You know, when you see something in the word and God promises us something in the word, don't send somebody to check it out. That's nothing but doubt, unbelief. And as a matter of fact, it's evil. If God said it, you got to accept it. So anyway, the spies come back and 10 of them bring back an evil report. They said there's giants in the land, walled cities in the land. And if they go in, they won't be able to defeat them and the land will swallow them up. God's like, wait a minute. Did you already forget all the things I just did for you, getting you out of Egypt and all the miracles and parting of the Red Sea? Do you think I'm not capable of defeating a few overgrown people and some walled cities? So because of your unbelief, lack of faith, and rebellion, I'm going to cause you to wander in this wilderness until the carcasses, at least of this generation, rot in the desert. You ain't going in. He said, I'm going to let your children possess the land that I promised Abraham because it's not their fault that they have stupid parents. If we don't teach our children to follow God, I'm not going to say you're stupid. That wouldn't be respectful. But you're not very smart. If you don't teach your children to follow God, who is? If you don't teach your children who the one true God is and keep them out of hell, who's going to? So anyway, that generation dies in the wilderness. God raises up Joshua to lead the new generation into the promised land. And Joshua takes them in. And him and God defeat all of the enemies, all of the giants, all the walled cities. God causes the first city, Jericho, the walls to just fall to the ground. And Joshua and them march in and take it just like that. That's what he would have did to that first generation. But they didn't have the faith in God's word and what he said he would do. So Israel finally becomes this great and powerful nation that God said they would. And they're dwelling in the promised land that God said he would give them. But people are never satisfied. God can never seem to do enough for some people. So they say, God, we want to have a king. We want a king like all the other nations. And God is like, I'm your king. Yeah, but we want a human king. We want a man king like the other nations. You mean the heathen nations that I just helped you defeat? Those nations, you want a king like them? They all been defeated because I was your king. Yeah, but we still want a king. 
So God gives him Saul, a stately man. He stood head and shoulders above all the other men. And then Saul turns out to be a terrible king. But God warned him this would happen. He's rebellious and disobedient. He's ruling the people under a heavy hand. And he leads Israel down the wrong path. So God removes him and gives him another king by the name of David. And God said, now this king is a man after my own heart. He's a murderer and an adulterer, but <laughs> he's a better king than Saul. I, I don't know why that is. I'll ask God when I get to heaven or ask David or somebody, but I don't understand that. Man after his own heart, but he's an adulterer and a murderer. And that's probably comforting for somebody that's going around killing people right now, but I don't know. But anyway, David defeats all of Israel's enemies again. And Israel prospers under his reign. And David wants to build a temple for God to dwell in, like they had the Old Testament temple where he could put the Ark of the Covenant and his presence could dwell amongst his people that he loves so much. And God says, you got too much blood on your sword, David. You can't build it. So David has a son by the name of Solomon, and he starts out really good. But God has him build a temple. And it's a beautiful temple. It's, it's laid, uh, what do they call it, where they put the gold in the walls and everything. It's a beautiful temple. Spared no expense. And uh, God's going to dwell in this temple. It's going to have a holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, and the lampstand, and all of this stuff that he had in the old tabernacle. And God is going to dwell. His presence is going to dwell in that temple. And God fills that temple with his presence and his glory. And Israel, under the rule of Solomon, was in the zenith of glory. I mean, there was a, they were the richest nation in the world. They had uh, queens and kings coming from other nations just to talk to Solomon and see how God blessed Israel, just like God said he would do. God's finally getting the recognition and the worship that he deserves. His people are finally counting him worthy. And the world is beginning to understand and recognize how great and blessed Israel is because they serve the one and only true God. And just like God wanted to in the beginning, he's reintroducing himself to the world. And these people are beginning to accept the God of Israel. But eventually, you'll never guess what happens. They rebel again. They intermingle with other wives, including Solomon, heathen wives, and their wives influence them to worship false gods and devils and deities that don't exist. And so the kingdom becomes divided. Even Israel's at each other's throat. Remember I preached our New Year's message on, on unity and coming together? And you know, Well, they were like that, and they were thriving at that time when they were united and together. But now the kingdom splits and the tribe of Judah stays in Jerusalem. The other 11 tribes go north. They become the northern kingdom and Judah becomes the southern kingdom. 
And the northern kingdom uh, is under a king by the name of Jeroboam. And he's not such a good king. But Israel goes back into sin and rebellion, and the northern kingdom is really bad for about 100 years. It seems like they didn't have any good kings ruling over them the whole 100 years. So God allows the Assyrians to go in and conquer them and take them out of the promised land and enslave them in other lands. In other words, they're back in captivity. So then they try to march on the southern kingdom, which is Judah, but they're under the leadership of Hezekiah, who's a good king that fears God. And, and so they defeat the Assyrians and send them packing. And so they thrive for a while after the northern kingdom is gone. And, and But some years go by and the kings keep changing and finally Judah rebels against God. So guess what happened? God allows the Babylonians to come in and take them captive now and take them out of the promised land and in the process they destroyed that beautiful temple that Solomon built and of course with that the glory of the Lord departs <laughs> if you like history you're probably enjoying this if you don't like history it's like yeah. But after the Babylonians comes the Persian Empire, and I'm getting somewhere with this, under a king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus is impressed by God to let Israel return to their homeland. They're scattered all over. So he allows the governor of the people, Zerubbabel, and their high priest, Jeshua, to lead them back to the homeland. So now the people of Israel are back in their homeland, the promised land that God gave them to begin with, and they're doing pretty good. They're rebuilding their homes, and they're prospering in the land, and they're farming, and their fishing industry is booming, and everything's going real good for them. And, and then a little while later, another king comes along by the name of Darius, and Darius is the king when we pick up the story here in the book of Haggai. So the prophet Haggai comes and speaks to Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the people and says, I have a word from God for you. Man, it, you know what it's like to get a word from God when you haven't had a word from God in a long time? And all of a sudden now God speaks? You know, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the start of the New Testament in Matthew, there's a period of 400 years. And during that 400 years, God didn't speak to any of them. Didn't send any prophets. There wasn't no prophets in the land. He didn't speak to them at all for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, the word comes from heaven. Boy, what a refreshing thing to have a word from God. Well, here, he's, Haggai has a word from God. So they're all excited. Now, you wanted to know what Haggai's message was. So here, I'm going to tell you. In Haggai 1, verse 3, it says, then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in rooms? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. 
You eat but are never satisfied. You drink but are still thirsty. You put on clothes but can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. Now, go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. While all of you are busy building your own fine houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. You know, God only, I mean, even God, he's a patient. He's long-suffering, but eventually he runs out of patience. And when he runs out of patience, he has to judge us for our rebellion, our disobedience, our disrespect. And this is why a lot of people, good Christian people, can't get ahead. This is why they never have enough. They're too busy. We're not talking about a brick and mortar building here. They're talking about people that are too busy building their own lives and, and too busy putting themselves first that they don't have time or money left to build God's house, the kingdom. I'm not talking about, I know there's all kinds of Temples being built and churches being built and mega churches being built. That ain't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building God's kingdom. Peter said we're all lively stones, a spiritual habitation. So we're not building God's true temple. And the building material is people. Why? Because God's not first in our life. And he's certainly not getting our money to... Uh, I don't want to say purchase, but to supply some timber from the hills, some building materials, some lively stones from the hills. God gave us everything. He said, I'm all in. And he sends Jesus. Jesus gave us everything. He said, I'm all in. And he went to the cross. The Holy Ghost gave everything. He came to the earth on the day of Pentecost and poured himself into every believer so they could be empowered to love and serve God. He said, I'm all in. And what do we do? The same thing everyone has always done, the same thing that all those people I talked about for the last 40 minutes, we throw God in the trunk or at best the back seat and we continue doing things our way. I know this is tight, but it's right. I'll serve you if I have time. I'll go to church if I have time. I'll worship you if I have time. 
I'll praise you, but only when you do something good for me. I'll pray if I have time. I'll read your word if I have time. I'll tithe and give offerings if I have any money left over. And I'll love you when it's convenient. I'm glad God didn't love us that way. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to straighten your life out. He didn't wait for you to stop doing the things you were doing and become a good person before he came and saved you. But before we do anything for God or serve him, he has to meet certain conditions. Have we become that haughty that we don't recognize who he is anymore? He owns it all. If you're blessed, I'm blessed. We have two good cars. We have a beautiful home. We have a family that's blessed. We're, we're blessed. But we know where it came from. And you can get mad at me if you want, but I got to tell you the truth. And that's, that's what's not happening in a lot of pulpits in America today. Instead of telling you the truth, they're telling you how much God wants to bless you and how much God wants to prosper you and how God wants to buy you a new car and a new house and all of this stuff and, and how God winks at sin nowadays and, uh, you know, because he understands us now. Like he didn't understand us before. But now he understands us. He knows why we sin. He knows we can't help ourselves. That's why he's so forgiving. I'm going to tell you something. Because i got to tell you the truth. If you're not willing to go in, all in, in these last days, the devil's going to take you out. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to shut up and let you think about it. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. He found this field, he found the treasure, and he hid it. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What did he do? He went all in on that field. And then in verse 45, it has no relationship to the field, but it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. This ain't the same guy here. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, that's not the treasure that the, the other guy found in the field. This is separate. He went and sold all that he had, and he bought that pearl. He went all in on that pearl. He totally committed himself, his life, his livelihood, everything. He committed to that pearl that he found. We can spiritualize this all you want. Jesus is the pearl. We found it. But that's not what it means. What he's talking about, the field is the world. The man that found the field or purchased the field is Jesus Christ. Because Adam sold that field to the devil. And, he, and Jesus came to redeem it back and buy it back. 
And in that field is a pearl, but it's not Jesus, it's us. Jesus found us who were lost. And he went all in and he bought us back. Gave it all for us. He went all in. Let me ask you a question. Should he be number one in our lives? Should we seek him first above all things? Whether he adds everything to us or not? Yes. You know, I was in the bar when the Lord found me. Or I was in the bar when I found the Lord. I don't care who found who. He's the one that came looking. And you'd have never been found if he didn't come looking. And yet we're so haughty. We're going to tell God what to do. We're going to tell God what we're going to do. I know what the Bible says, but I, I, I don't feel. Better watch yourself. I know what the Bible says, period. And I'm going to do what it says, period. I'm telling you, I'm all in. I'm all in. And the one thing about being all in is you are fully committed. There's no turning back. I don't care how hard things get, how rough things get. I'm all in, all the time, all the way. And if you're not like that in these last days, you're going to have a hard time. I'm telling you that right now. Times are going to get real hard for you. Because I look at what's going on in the world today, and I only see one solution, and that's Jesus Christ coming back. But before he comes back, we better be out there bringing timber in from the hills. We better be out there getting some lively stones and bring them back to this temple and continue building this temple until Jesus gets here. I'm not packed waiting for him to come. I'm not standing on the corner waiting for the, the glory bus to come by. I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be busy gathering timber and, and gathering stones, and I'm going to continue building this temple till he comes. That's our job. That's why we're here. We weren't put here so God has somebody to bless and prosper and put us in a big mansion. Nothing wrong with a big mansion. Nothing wrong with having nice cars and things, but that better not be your priority. Because God will snatch it right out from under you. It's okay to have nice things. But you better be willing to part with them. You better be willing to give that thing away. Because it's not yours. Everything belongs to who? God. Who was in the beginning. And, and, and when we're gone and become the dust of the earth. He's still God. We better learn to recognize that. Like the song said, he is worthy. But we don't act like it sometimes. Amen. Hallelujah. Sorry I had to bring the news, but it needed to be said. Amen. Let's pray. Father. Pretty sure I gave it to you exactly like you gave it to me. And if I sounded mean, I didn't really mean to. 
was being mean at the devil because I'm sick and tired of what the devil is doing to God's people and God's children. I'm sick and tired of what he's doing to families and marriages and people's health. So I'm going to say it in front of you and everybody else. If I haven't been all in, I'm all in today. I'm going all in today, God. It's all of you or nothing. No more straddling the fence, at least not for me. But Father, I pray that some part of this message touched somebody in here today and is going to cause them to recognize and realize who you are and how much you deserve our praise and our worship and our commitment. You gave it all for us, but you only require a little back from us. But that's not enough for me anymore. I'm all in, God. I'm going all in. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. It may not be as much as you love us, but we do love you. And I pray that we recognize you for who you are after today. If nothing else, we'll come, come out of here today recognizing you for who you are. But we're going to give you the glory and the praise and the worship because you are worth it. We wouldn't be here if you didn't have a thought. So we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Hallelujah. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.